This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 517 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show, Chad Lyman. Now, Chad is not only a veteran law enforcement officer who's worked in Portland and Vegas, but also has spent much of his career teaching defensive tactics, including jujitsu. So we discuss a host of topics from his own journey into law enforcement to teaching combatives, some very interesting perspectives on some of the issues that we're seeing facing law enforcement today, and so much more. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on. Subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 500 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help pay it forward and share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Chad Lyman. Enjoy. Well, Chad, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and your listeners, brother. So for everyone listening, where are we finding you on planet Earth today? 
So I'm in Las Vegas, Nevada. This is where I live, is in Las Vegas. I travel pretty extensively to teach and to coach, but but I live in Las Vegas. I'm a police officer here. I've been a police officer since the late 90s. Uh, started in Portland, Oregon, and uh, live in Las Vegas now since 2004. I've been with uh, Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department here in Vegas. Beautiful. So I know you weren't born and bred, as, as you said, in uh, in Vegas. So let's start at the very beginning. Tell me where you were born and tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did, how many siblings. Cool. So I, I was born in uh, Northern California in Los Gatos. Uh, my mom and dad had uh, my older sister and then my older brother and then myself. They ended up splitting up. My dad uh, left when I was still very, very young. And then my mom met just a phenomenal, phenomenal human being, uh, married him. And then he raised myself and my siblings. And then we added a couple of additional brothers. And uh, we lived throughout our young lives. And we, we moved from Northern California to Southern California. And then my, my folks split up at some point there. And we bounced around a little bit from Utah uh, I think we lived briefly in Colorado, then Utah, and then eventually settled in Phoenix, Arizona, and was pretty much raised middle school on in Phoenix. But uh, my dad, the man who raised me, uh, his last name is Lyman, and, and I took that last name when I turned 18 uh, to honor him, and my older siblings did as well, because he pretty much raised us. and. Uh, just a, a great human being treated us uh, like his blood kids. Uh, we don't call our other brothers stepbrothers. We don't call them our stepdad. It's our dad, and those are our brothers. And and uh, just really united the family, which was really cool. He also did that with honor towards my birth father. He, I've never heard him speak ill of my birth father, even though that guy is a little bit of a piece of work. Uh, I think got better as he got older. I think he matured and prior to him passing away from cancer, uh, he and I reestablished a relationship, but, but, um, those are kind of some of the family dynamics. I, I come from a, a divorced household and then a blended family, but really made out in, in who my mom married the, the second time. I'm sure my birth dad was a decent guy, but he left and we didn't have a relationship with him for years. And uh, this guy who replaced him is so funny. He thinks of us so much as our kids. I've had conversations where he's called me and said, hey, uh, you need to know there's a family history of this, you know, for your kids. Because I've been married over 30 years, and my wife and I have had eight children. We've had three daughters and five sons together, still happily married. And my dad will call and say, hey, we have this family history. And I'll say, dad, you're, you're not related to me. <laughs> and he'll go, oh, yeah, because <laughs> he's just, you know, he thinks I'm his kid, you know, uh, but still very respectful to my birth father. I've never heard him badmouth my my birth father in any way. And um, my mom had some hard feelings for that guy, but she didn't do that either. They didn't spend a lot of time um, complaining or or, or blaming People, they spent a lot of time uh, trying to be, be happy people themselves and, and build a happy relationship and, and doing a good job parenting us. And that, that was a huge blessing. I, did, I don't have a lot of the, the things that I see a lot of people go through 
uh, in that manner. I do remember feeling uh, probably some of the normal things that kids feel when a parent leaves and there's not a lot of communication and wondering why and being angry and all that stuff. But that stuff got done away with just by positive things being put in front of me daily. And, um, and then I subsequently have had a very successful, uh, long-term marriage and relationship. And that's probably due to the way that my parents, um, did it. Both of them, that was their second marriage. Uh, both my, my mom and my dad, interestingly enough, had spouses that, that left or decided they didn't want to be there anymore. And then they ended up with each other and, and now they've been together so long that it's like, They've been together since I think I was four, I think, and I'm in my 50s now. So it's been a long time. Well, it's so so good to hear for a number of reasons. Firstly, um, my my ex, her father walked away when I think she was four, four or five, and just basically control alt delete. He just went and started a brand new family and just walked away from his daughter, which I know you know factored into to some of the mental health issues that she's challenged with to this day but the importance of the man that stepped into their family dynamic that excuse me family dynamic that became her father just like you that's who she thinks of as a dad um and now my my son's granddad but you get one of two things that come out of that either the kids follow the same path and become you know serial adulterers themselves whatever or they see that and go, I'm never going to let that happen again, which is something that, you know, I think that I saw, my parents got divorced when I was 18. But, you know, I was like, even though my first one, kind of like you said, she went off with someone else, kind of a little bit out of your control. Um, I I knew I wanted to maintain that healthy family dynamic and I didn't want to be, as you said, that bitter parent that's blaming and talking crap about the other one all the time. I mean, you know, what happened happened and when he asked me, I lay, I lay down the facts, but Aside from that, she's his mother, and as long as she's in the picture, then yeah, it's. I think it's very unhealthy to 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 make the child the the rope in a tug of war between two parents. So what's interesting is, yeah, my parents have always been honest with me. I mean, and and Jerry, who was my birth father, has continued to struggle and continued to struggle in relationships into his late adulthood, and then finally met a great guy. All the women he married were amazing women he married another gal had two kids with her and then left her and left those kids like left them like uh so it was a weird dynamic i had these brothers sisters from jerry my birth dad that we actually connected and and became uh close and call each other brother and sister to this day the the sister not as much she she was really um and i'm now speaking of you know, I have my siblings from Jerry that I grew up with, and all of us are really close, uh, really tight. And then I have Casey and then his sister um, from Jerry's second marriage, and and the daughter from that marriage uh, struggles to this day and really has a lot of issues um, and, and has really struggled. His son, though, Casey, from that, from that second marriage that then he walked away from that boy and I, uh, uh, stay in contact, wish we had more contact, but consider each other brothers. And, uh, what's really interesting out of all of it is all of us had, I guess our birth dad's, uh, interest and we're a lot like him, even though we don't, uh, I didn't realize it cause I didn't physically know him really. Um, 
but like Casey played college football. Uh, my brother and I are black belts in jujitsu and high level coaches. And I've coached on a professional level. Uh, I was a very, uh, overachieving athlete, played multiple sports and did well at those. Um, uh, and from what I understand, my birth father loved football, uh, loves MMA, those kind of things. He has sons that played or coached at the highest levels and he's never seen us do any of it, uh, because he walked away. And so it, it really is kind of a weird thing. Now, Casey stayed close to Jerry and, and kept reaching out to him throughout his life. Um, his mom was wonderful, um, didn't rebound as well, didn't remarry. And so Casey kind of held on to, to Jerry at, 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 and considered Jerry dad. For my siblings and I, we all changed our last name to Lyman. Every one of us changed our name when we turned of age. Um, even though Jerry wasn't involved in our lives, um, when my parents reached out to him to change our names, he said he didn't want that. And so we had to wait until we were 18 uh, and then do that. My older siblings waited for me to turn 18. And then we did that as a group uh, legally. Despite that, there was never any hatred fostered towards Jerry. My older siblings kept in closer contact to Jerry throughout our years uh, until Jerry passed. And then near the end of Jerry's life, uh, um, he was able to reestablish some contact with me. And my wife and I were were open to that, but we already had multiple children. I can remember when his mother died, who was my grandmother, who also stayed very much in the picture and was a good grandmother, even after Jerry left. And my parents loved her and treated her really well. Even after my mom remarried, uh, we considered her grandma. And um, we maintained a relationship with her up to the point she died. When she died, just prior to that, Jerry had started to reestablish with me. And I can remember showing up to that funeral and and Jerry not being able to introduce my wife and my kids to extended family on his side because he just hadn't kept contact. And we didn't embarrass him. He just, as my grandson, and then we would say the name. And as my granddaughter, we would say the name. And uh, But it just was interesting to watch. Really, the only guy who got robbed in that whole thing was him because uh, we I really got taken care of well. And then, uh, but I was grateful at the end of, near the end of Jerry's life to at least reconnect with them. And, and, um, certainly I have a lot of the good things in me are, are many of them as a result of probably him. And then, uh, some of the challenging aspects of my personality, I understand are, are aspects that he had challenges with too. And so it's kind of interesting. I kind of got um, the best of both worlds because the guy my mom married is, is, uh, my younger brothers, uh, don't have the interest in jujitsu or MMA. They're not really the warrior mindset, that kind of thing. I think I get all that from Jerry. And then, and then Brent Lyman, who raised me, I think from him, I learned, uh, compassion and caring for people and, and, Maybe more courage because Brent will stand up for himself or his family, but he's not naturally a warrior type guy. That's not who he is. Uh, my older brother Craig and I are absolutely from that, from birth. I mean, that is who we are. That's part of our persona. If we weren't living some of those um, characteristics, and I'm talking about not not a movie 
warrior, not a uh, not a a book or a, a meme on Instagram, but in our minds, someone who's willing to stand up for what's right, who's who's willing to to go into battle if need be to defend others or ourselves. Um, that kind of a mentality I think comes from my birth father. And, uh, because from what I understand, he was that way. He just sometimes would go the other way (laughs) where, uh, like, from what I understand, like that dude would fight in the street and he, (laughs) he didn't take guff from people. And, uh, that dude was more your, your traditional kind of tough guy from what I understand. It's smaller guy played middle linebacker in college, very hard nosed physical individual. And uh, all those things come from him, man. And so that aspect of me comes from him. My learning to control it and make it work in a positive manner probably comes from the man who raised me. So I kind of got the best of both worlds. See, it's interesting. I love these early family questions that, that, you know, pull out so much gold. And a lot of what you talk about is, you know, sharpening the axe. I forget the quote I saw on one of the, the web pages, but, you know, it's... You know, if, if you just go in there with, with brutality and no communication, then you're going to be a liability and vice versa. You could be a nice person with no hands on yeah. skills and be a liability as well. So it's interesting hearing the backstory that you had the toughness of the warrior mentality and you had the compassion and kindness. And as a police officer, I think the mixture of those two are exactly what we need. Yeah. You have to have it right. So it, it, there has to be an overwhelming desire to care for other people and even when you do violence or force it it, it's got to be directed out of a desire to care for or defend or help uh other people and that could include me but now we extrapolate that we we look at it from a law enforcement perspective and i'm using force or violence because my bad guy will not comply with lawful commands and so now he presents a physical resistance to whatever I need him to do. And then he begins to manifest an intent to do harm to me or to somebody else. If I'm proficient as a warrior, it's actually care for my subject as well, meaning the suspect, the one I'm using force on, because the more proficient I can be, the more likely it is that the measures I use to intervene with uh, the bad guys resistance are more likely to work. And so if I can get those to work at a lower level because I'm proficient, well, then it actually cares for the suspect because he's going to have less injury. Now I, I pretty much reject that. And the numbers bear it out. Every study bears it out. I reject any premise or idea or hypothesis that American law enforcement is filled with excessive force. That's not happening, and and the numbers bear it out. There's just nowhere. This has been studied time and again by academic uh, approaches, by internal approaches from professional people within my field, subject matter experts, that excessive force is not a pandemic or a massive problem. Uh, It has occurred throughout history and, and time, and when it occurs, it's identified and dealt with. But it, it's not a, a pandemic. What is an issue, and, and we do see this repeatedly, is ineffective force. So by being a competent warrior, I, I actually am compassionate even towards the person I use force upon because I use effective force 
that has the desired effect of overcoming resistance, establishing control, allowing me to gain custody of the individual, oftentimes with a lesser degree of force or a lesser injury to my suspect. Now, once again, um, that increased ability for me to do it is a is a a plus for me and safety and a plus for my bad guy and his safety. But because I'm not more effective than the bad guy at violence doesn't mean I'm excessive. Uh, the bad guy is driving this 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 bus and they're deciding, hey, I can comply or I can fight. And if you choose the fight option, uh, you are choosing to have force used against you, unfortunately, and that that could have consequences uh, for you. So um, I certainly think that that well-trained warrior actually breeds compassion in force events, and uh, and and I'm I'm convinced of that. Yeah, no, I agree, I agree completely. Coming from you know obviously a fire background, so I'm not law enforcement, but I've been in martial arts my whole life as well. Um, what I see is, you know, I mean, obviously there are the stark videos everyone will, you know, will think about, like Rodney King, where it's hard to justify a ring of dudes taking it in turns to smack someone lying on the ground, even though the backstory might have pissed them off royally. You know, there's that element of professionalism. I think George Floyd's another one. But so many of the ones one click down from that, you know, when you do see excessive force, to me, it screams poor training. You know, when people have gone directly to the the firearm, it means that you're not confident with your physical skills, with your hands-on skills. Um, so while we're on this topic, let's let's talk about that. Some of the not the blatant this person should never have been hired in the first place, which you know we all have that in fire and police and everyone else. But a lot of the more gray area ones. What are you seeing? I, I just had a great um, uh, police chief on who their department is doing incredible things. I mean jujitsu and stress inoculation through defensive tactics and weapons training and all kinds of things. But overall, some of these these resulting issues that put a piece of videotape on a news network, what are some of the glaring issues that you're seeing behind some of these particular individuals? So, I, well, I think there's a few things at play when we see a video that is um, that we think is distasteful or we think is bad or or whatever adjective we want to use there. I think one thing that happens is that uh, there's no context to the video and and there's no context and there's no understanding of of there's a lot of things that lead up to that force event. It's not like a random fist fight in the street. Uh, there was some kind of call for service or details in that that got broadcast to units. Uh, they're coming into it with some kind of an, an idea, uh, understanding that the information they initially received could even be wrong. Uh, it could be better than what they're being dispatched, and it could be worse. Um, but there's, 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 there's context to the officer even showing up. Even if the officer sees someone and makes a conscious decision to stop that person, there's things they're seeing or behaviors they're seeing that are making them think, hey, this might be this kind of a crime or this guy might be armed because of this thing that I'm observing about this guy's behavior or about the call. So we, we have that, and that's missing um, when we show a video clip on a news station and then say, oh, this is wrong or this is right. You can't say either in the vast majority of cases because there's no context. So that's the first thing that's missing. Um, um, 
also the video camera could be showing a, a very different perspective than what the officer sees. We see it from a video camera and we think, well, that's exactly what the cop sees, not realizing the cop's got a completely different vantage point than the video and he might not have as clear a vision or he might be looking at something else. Where my eyes go is where my focus goes. But that's also training where we start teaching guys, open up your vision, start opening up what you're looking at. Don't get tunneled into one thing because then you might think that that's the problem inaccurately. So that's training as well. So the first couple things are, are when people look at video, they have to understand those things. Once we get past that, uh, what we do see on video, no matter what the context is, no matter what the call was, no matter what the situation is as it develops, is we also see a lot of very ineffective uh, combative hands-on training uh, or performance in the field. Um, so this comes from a couple different places. Um, first is the, the department itself may not have any curriculum that's worthwhile. They may, they may be teaching ineffective uh, defensive tactics or combatives, and that's very, very common. Um, a second thing is they may not be teaching it or training on a regular basis. And so uh, there's no ongoing uh, training or the standard is so ridiculously low that competency is never even approached uh, for the end user. So ineffective training is what we can be viewing on that video or no training. Um, so I, I think it's a combination of those things when we see these short video clips. One of the things that I teach in my, in my, um, in my organization, my private company that, that I teach police jujitsu through, uh, one of the things I tell my instructors is if, if you coach for me, I actually want you to be on social media in a positive light. I don't want you being on there being a crazy person. You can post whatever you want, but it may affect our relationship. So I won't censor them or tell them they can't post something. But what you post may have the consequence that I decide you and I have a different view of things and you're not an adjunct instructor anymore. And so I don't want to see hateful things towards communities or towards people you shouldn't feel that way. We're, we're trying to serve these communities. We should have a, a measure of, of care for these communities and for the people that we're out there serving among. And, and we can't have that and, and conversely think everyone's a dirtbag or whatever other adjective you want to throw in there. So I'm not a big guy for that kind of nonsense. And then the other thing is you're not going to see one of my guys post a video of a cop punching someone. And then say, hey, jujitsu is the answer without any context on that call. Now, if you know that call and you investigated that call and you know that because he might be punching him because the call said the dude had a gun. And now the guy's right hand has gone from outside of his body underneath his body. And it might be great that he's punching him because he's punching him so he doesn't have to shoot him. That might be a good outcome. So I don't know why he's punching him. And so you're not going to see us post a video and go, hey, do police jujitsu. We're not building our business off five-second videos of guys in the field dealing with a real threat that we don't know what the threat is. Maybe before the video clipped on, that dude tried to disarm that officer. I don't know. Um, maybe it's completely inappropriate. That could be. I'm open to that. 
as a possibility of what I'm looking at, but I'm not building my business off the backs of dudes in the street fighting with people who, who, if they lose that fight, it might mean death or significant injury to them. Uh, you know, and so those videos, uh, now having said that I won't build my business off of them, when I watch someone punching someone ineffectively with no effect and then not transition to something else, well, then that's something I can talk to. And I can say, I'm not saying that punching him was inappropriate, but it was ineffective. And so what else could we do other than just punch this guy? And and that I'm really open to. Beautiful. Well, well, you have a very unique perspective. So I just want to kind of walk you through your journey into law enforcement and then jujitsu, and then we'll come back and revisit these topics because I think it's important. Um, I know you didn't start in law enforcement. You started, as you referred to, the dark side, the fire service. So kind of walk me through your first responder journey. Yeah, yeah. So I was a firefighter in Phoenix, Arizona for, for a year. Um, I worked for Rural Metro, which is a smaller private bit, private fire company that, that contracts with uh, municipalities and, and counties and still does that to this day in the Phoenix metro area. And as a firefighter EMT, I started holding short uh, and watching the cops go down the street to deal with these issues. And I didn't want to hold short. And the, the majority of my fire time was actually uh, medical calls, um, as any guy in fire service will tell you. And primarily, I was running on medical calls. The The journey for me that would have made sense in the fire service was maybe to go to paramedic, engineer, maybe promote up through, and uh, maybe even bump over to City of Phoenix Fire. That kind of would have been that path, probably. But I hated holding short. I couldn't stand it. At the same time that I was a firefighter, and even before, I had a brother-in-law who worked for the Glendale Police Department in Glendale, Arizona, and we did ride-alongs with him. And I just liked what he was doing a lot more than what I was doing. And uh, so I decided uh, I was married. My my wife, who was a sister of the police officer that I would do ride-alongs with, um, said, hey, uh, you know, if you're not happy, let's get back and let's do law enforcement. I also had a desire to finish up my education. I'd done some education, but not much. Uh, and uh, done some EMT work and stuff like that out of it. And I wanted to go back to school. And so uh, we decided to go back to college at that point. And I, I resigned from the fire service. I went back to college with my eye on earning my degree and also becoming a police officer. We moved out to Portland, Oregon, because her folks, her dad was a risk manager for the city of Portland at the time. He had moved from Phoenix to Portland. And we moved up there for me to go to Portland State University and um, and go to school. And I got on with what was called Police Corps. It was a, a program at the time under President Clinton where they gave money to people who wanted law enforcement as a career to go to college first. And then for every year they worked after college, uh, 20 grand would, or not 20 grand, five grand or seven grand, something like that would get maybe 10, 10 grand. Something like that would get lopped off my student debt oh, for nice. every year of service. They would forgive 
student loans that I had taken. And so I went to school first and I had to get a sponsoring agency. And at that time, the Portland Police Bureau was in the program and they sponsored me. It was like being on scholarship. I went to college first. And in the summers, I went to police training between my junior and senior year for, for the whole summer, went to live in dorm style academies away from my family for both the summer between my senior year, my junior year and the summer after my senior year. Graduated from a federally funded federal academy that was extensive. It was about seven months live-in total. Um, got my bachelor's degree, graduated from that academy, went over to the city of Portland, went to their academy, and then became a Portland police officer. And that was in 1998. And then I worked for the city of Portland till 2004 when I moved to Vegas. Now, just to jump in then. So it sounds like your initial police training in the bar was set very high. It sounds very familiar to some of my early career training that I got. What was that like when you went from the federal training into Portland's training? Was there any, any kind of lowering of standards or was it held equally high? No, it, city of Portland actually is pretty rigorous in their training for their officers. Uh, I don't agree with how their officers get treated and with even their administration, I feel like it it caters to groups that are uh, openly, not in, even interested in improving law enforcement. They're, they're anti the idea of having a police department. And, and I feel like there's a lot of politicizing amongst their upper brass, but the line ops, some of the result of that is that their training is actually very extensive and very good. And so um, the federally funded program was held in the Portland metro area. We had officers from South Carolina, from um, Oregon. I think there were some from Arizona, some from Utah, I think, that went in the summers to that academy. It was actually held at a military base in Astoria, Oregon. But a lot of the personnel who were the training personnel hired to run that were Portland police officers. The vast majority came from the Portland Police Bureau at the time, who was a huge supporter of the program. Um, so I think it was a double-edged sword. Portland was so political that it was a bit irritating and, and, and a challenging work environment. But they also had a high academic standard and training standard to work there. And I think that benefited the average everyday officer. And uh, so I received training uh, on the federal side and then went to in-house. Um, some of the things that did change a little bit when I went in-house, the the def the defensive tactics and was harder in police corps than it was for the city of Portland. I mean, we were punching each other and getting after it in the police corps academy and we didn't do as much of that in the portland academy it wasn't bad it just was different and uh but i found the portland police bureau uh to be an incredible place to work from the aspect of they are not lacking in their abilities they are lacking in the support for those men and women and lacking severely to the point where it's toxic to be a cop there um it's very very challenging but the individual men and women who work for that police department are outstanding police officers. Uh, they're just handcuffed every time they turn around. Yeah. No, and I see that from the outside looking in, even from coming from a different profession. Um, and, you know, to me, one of the, the core things that seems to come out of this, and I talk about this a lot, is 
you know, the that law enforcement is racist. And I'm like, the the concept that you would go through all the training for the opportunity of maybe one day getting to brutalize or take a life of someone of a different skin color. And when you could just go sign up for the clan and take the shortcut, you know what I mean? It's it's absolute insanity. And the fact that people are bought into that and this defunding and all this stuff when as a firefighter, you know, I mean, my profession, they're working 56 hour work weeks up every third day, they're understaffed, getting mandatory. Defunding is not an answer for any of these. You know, they, these are woefully underpaid, overworked people. But the people, you know, behind this are going to bed every night and getting salaries that probably double most first responders. So it just it, it infuriates me that that's what's been allowed to happen to tar, you know, the, the, the entire profession with the same brush when, yes, absolutely some mistakes were made and that needs to be investigated, not only the individual, but the lack of training, the sleep deprivation, all these other areas. But, you know, if one plumber floods a house... Are we going to basically hang all plumbers from a tree? No, we're just not going to use that plumber again. And he's going to, you know, be sued or whatever. But that doesn't represent the entire profession. Well, you even look at the George Floyd event. And um, I'm going to speak very generally because I didn't have any insight into the investigation itself and didn't get to look at the evidence. I am a court-recognized subject matter expert. I testify in multiple jurisdictions. Uh, have have rendered opinions uh, in cases back east on the west coast um, uh, all over the country so and normally when I go and I in the Pacific Northwest normally when I go and I do author a an opinion in these events literally they look at my bio and they just even the other side will will stipulate which means agree that I'm an SME in these areas so we look at George, George Floyd. And that becomes the impetus for a bunch of riots and a bunch of change and, and let's make legislation. And all these things are done in the honor and name of George Floyd because of uh, clearly law enforcement must have massive problems if George Floyd occurs. Now, to your point, when we look at that event, there's obviously huge problems with that. But let's look at the response. And this was prior to any legislation. This was under the old rules. Chauvin gets fired within a week. He gets charged within a week. He then gets convicted of every charge, which that doesn't happen on the cases I build on career bad guys. Stuff gets pled, stuff gets dropped, stuff gets changed to a different charge. That's normal in court. That happens every day. Hundreds in every courtroom across this land. This guy, the department fires him. They then charge him. That was a criminal event that then got treated as a criminal event. The event is a problem. His behavior is a problem, but that's not an industry problem. That didn't get covered up. No one fought back. There weren't people going on to shows like yours, going Derek Chauvin's getting a raw deal. Nobody did that. This is uh, an opportunistic event that's been used po- that's been used politically to denigrate a whole profession of people. When the profession actually responded immediately, rapidly, and correctly, and then followed through. So, what's all the legislation about? And what it's about is your personal beliefs and views, and you using George Floyd 
to advance an agenda that's not even accurate for what happened on that call. On that call, a crime got committed by a guy in uniform, and that guy got charged and convicted of the crime. That's it. That's not indicative of what happens every day. What, we had 700 of these and we did nothing to them? But poor Mr. Chauvin, and I'm saying this sarcastically, I don't feel this way, but you would have to have that as your as your talking point. That, oh yeah, it's common. It's not common. That's why that dude got fired. That's why that dude got charged and, and arrested. And that's why he got convicted. It's not common at all. It's criminal. And it got treated as such by the very industry that you're trying to say can't police themselves. It's unbelievable. And it's a game. And it's a game with lives on the line. And not the lives of me, meaning police officers or politicians, but the lives of the people who live in those neighborhoods. They're the ones who suffer. Yeah. I mean, you think of the lives that were lost because of the so-called response to that. And, you know, just to, to reply to your comment, I have never heard it framed that way. And, you know, you're absolutely right. You know, I mean, yes, it was wrong. But when you look at how it was treated, um, exactly like you said, the, the, the profession responded immediately and now he's in jail. So, but then you see the, the kind of so-called backlash and how many businesses were destroyed and how many people were murdered during that time, you know? So the, 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 as you said, the political pry bar that was used and the destruction and death that then ensued because of irresponsibility from so-called leaders, you know, and there's no ownership of that. There's no one really holding those people accountable. Uh, that, that was the early effect of this. That effect is far deeper today. You have the state of Illinois passing anti-law enforcement legislation. You have my state uh, passing uh, legislation. Uh, I'll give you an example. Recently in my state, they decided that it would be a good idea to decriminalize the charge of jaywalking and say jaywalking is not a crime. You can jaywalk all you want. Uh, because uh, the popular thought was that uh, – Minorities are stopped more for jaywalking than, than white people, and therefore jaywalking is not going to be a crime anymore. That's fine. We'll stop stopping people for jaywalking. No problem with that. The, the problem you're going to have is an uptick in deaths of pedestrians being hit by cars. That's going to happen. And the other thing that would happen is that as I come into an area where there's been a shooting or there's a robbery series and a guy sees me and he's involved in that kind of behavior. Maybe he has a gun on him and he's on the same side of the street with, as me and he doesn't want to be near me and he crosses unlawfully. That allows me to go out and talk to that guy. He doesn't, he has the gun and narcotics on him because he wasn't expecting police contact. So then he runs, we recover the gun, we get him. What started as a jaywalk ends up with the expelling with a gun and also a shooter and a homicide seven months ago when we link all the evidence to this guy, right? But it comes off a jaywalk, stop. Well, all those arrests are going to go away. And what's going to happen is, I think what lawmakers think is, well, when he shoots someone, arrest him then. The problem with that is he knows he just shot someone. So he gives a gun to another person who then gives it to another person. Then the gun ends up in a garbage can over here. They'll circle back and get it tonight. Everyone walks into someone's apartment. 
the cops get in the area and we don't catch him when he's doing dirt. We're only going to catch him when he's out on that corner and he unexpectedly sees us. Um, those kind of stops yield the best results. I've gotten the most guns and dope out of minor stops for minor offenses. I've gotten more guns, dopes, uh, guys wanted for murder out of those kind of stops than any stop ever. Now you can outlaw those stops and say they're not fair or they target or whatever you want to say. And we'll stop doing those stops. So take that example and look at what happens in Chicago and New York for the anti-law enforcement. Look at their crime rates. Look at Portland's. Every single city that did anti-police legislation has had violent crime go through the roof. Because here's the problem. When you pass legislation, I'm willing to accept a risk to my physical health and, and acknowledge that I may die doing this job. And that's not dramatic. It's not probable I'll die, but it's possible. And in my 20 plus years, I have, I'm up to 19 friends that have been killed in the line of duty or in training. Some of those were traffic accidents. One was a training accident. Um, all the others were murders. 19 people that I personally at least have some knowledge of or friendship with, I've buried in my 20 plus years in this game. So it's not probable that I'm going to get killed, but it is definitely a possibility. Okay. So I accept that. My wife has accepted it. My kids have accepted it. We've talked about it. It is what it is. What I will not accept are laws that then place me civilly responsible for, for reasonable actions. And I also won't accept laws that then put me at risk for arrest for doing my job. If you pass legislation that I, it's already dangerous to me physically, I may lose my life. But if you tell me you're also going to lose all your financial stake and you're also going to lose your freedom, well, I'll just slow down and I'll make sure that I'm not doing anything that's going to put me or my family at risk. And the issue with that is um, the reason that the laws are the way they are, the standard is from Graham v. Connor. When I use force or violence on another person, it has to be reasonable based upon the facts and circumstances that I know when I use a force. And that could be my gun. That could be strikes. That could be whatever it is. I have to have a reasonable response. Here's the thing about Graham. I could be wrong and still be justified. Someone could point a, an object at me. Uh, I've had a guy point a knife at me like it was a firearm. I was taking the slack out on the trigger on this particular event. Something didn't seem right, and I didn't pull the trigger. And I moved to cover, and I figured out it was a knife. But I, at, when he first squared off, he literally took a shooting stance and pointed it at me and later said he wanted me to shoot him. And I almost shot him. Now, I would have been justified to shoot him because I believed in that split second, that's a gun. Now, something about it for me at that moment, I was like, ah, something's wrong. And I moved as opposed to pulling the trigger. But it wouldn't have been unlawful or against policy or unreasonable for me to shoot this individual, even though he, he physically was far enough away, he couldn't stab me. Um, but that was a real life event that I went through that I could have shot him and engaged him and been wrong. Hey, I thought it was a gun. I thought he was going to shoot me. I, physically impossible that he could shoot me. 
But based on everything happening at that moment, and there's more to it that I won't go into for sake of time, but I was convinced he had a firearm in my mind. And it turned out to be wrong. Now, those shootings occur every day. Those shootings, to make a civil standard that I have to be right in my perception, not reasonable. That's what some states are doing. Well, I'll stop, I'll stop engaging people because I can't always be right. I can only be reasonable. It's okay to make to require me to be reasonable. It's not okay for me to, for you to require me to be perfect. It's impossible in any line of work to be perfect. So in the law enforcement line of work, when you tell us if you're not perfect, you're gonna lose your house, lose your pension, lose your freedom. Well, then I'll stop exposing myself. And, and that's the problem. So now we have this anti-LEO legislation, George Floyd Act. Congress is pushing and this thing and that thing. We're going to attack this law enforcement thing and this law. You can do that. And we will obey everything you pass. But the problem for you as a lawmaker is that once we obey the laws you passed, we can no longer effectively fight crime. You can't do both. We now become responsive. We become the fire department of law enforcement. We'll get there after. We'll pick up bodies. We'll call you guys, come pick up the bodies and maybe plug holes if you can. But there's nothing preemptive that's going to happen because you're outlawing it. And if you outlaw it, we'll stop doing it. Here's the other thing that's interesting to me about legislation, if I can continue this for just please, a second. Please, I'm fascinated. The other interesting thing about law enforcement legislation that's happening, and this is from the perspective of a career guy, and I'm not a bitter guy. I love the community, and that's why I serve. I'm, I'm, not, a, I'm not a hateful guy. I still have compassion. It actually hurts me what we're doing because we're going the wrong direction. And I feel like some of it is, is for sure there's, there's an agenda, and I feel like other people who are just good people don't understand the agenda and they jump in full on with these people that have a specific agenda. We don't want this to be a democracy anymore. We want a different form of government. We do not want a police department. Now we're going to, we're going to have this shroud of, Hey, there's racism. And since we're not fixing it, let's defund them and put the money over here. But the reality is they don't want a police department and good people who vote, uh, Say, oh, well, that sounds reasonable. I'll, go, I'll vote for that. And they don't understand the consequences on the other end. Career cops understand it. We understand it. You got to know what you're voting for. So you take these, these, these measures that folks vote on. Um, New York City passes a measure that says you can't put body weight on a subject in a struggle to get them into custody on the ground. And if you do, it's a crime, Mr. Policeman. So you have to come up with a way to train how to fight someone on the ground without putting body weight on them. Well, I'm a Brazilian jiu-jitsu and wrestling expert, subject matter expert, longtime professional coach. There's no way to effectively fight someone on the ground and not put weight on them. There's no way. That's not possible. And it doesn't induce sudden death or we would have deaths in wrestling matches where the whole goal is to pin the person with your weight. We would be like, oh, yeah, in the last meet, we lost two kids. You know, it's really a shame, you know, this body weight thing. It's just a nonsense. It's it's not happening. Um, people are dying after they take narcotics and have 
pre-existing heart or, or health issues and long time, poor dietary things. And then they, they, they put a lot of energy into a fight or flight with the police. We do have deaths there, but that's not the same thing as me putting weight on somebody. So New York city passes this ordinance. Some people from the city of New York reach out to me and say, Hey, can you provide us with training where we don't put any weight on an offender and we're fighting him on the ground and, and help us work around this new law. And can, can you come out and provide that training? And this would have been a contract for me. This would have been money. And, and I said, no, I won't do that. And he said, why won't you do that? And I said, don't you understand? They've sent you a clear message. They don't want you to fight with suspects on the ground. It's unlawful. So I could teach you everything awesome in the world. And someone could be in a struggle and fall on the guy and on body cam, we got body weight on him, and then he dies, they're going to indict you. That's what they're going to do to you. They're going to arrest you. They're going to say you broke the law. You put body weight on him here, here, here. They're going to watch video and slow it down and watch it. These three times in a, in a violent altercation where you're attempting to do this new technique, you ended up with body weight on the suspect. And that's against the law, Mr. Officer. They're going to charge you and indict you. What you should do with people who want to fight you is let them go. Because they don't want you to fight those people. They think the risk of apprehension versus the risk this person just might die, even though it rarely happens, are not equal. It is now against the law to apprehend. So they are valuing the suspect's life, which I don't. If you want to value that, I don't necessarily have a problem with it. But once you establish that value, I will no longer engage in that activity because here's a problem for the lawmakers. It's an interesting dynamic, too, that I've seen out of the George Floyd-type marches and the George Floyd-type legislation. And I'm using that word very generally to say police need massive reform. The reason we need massive reform, according to these activists, is that we don't obey the law, and so they need to spell it out for us. We're, we're out of control, rogue agents, uh, probably racist, um, unlawfully dispensing force upon uh, marginalized communities. So we're going to pass all these new sweeping laws. And so if I were to follow that logic out and say – the problem we have is a police force that doesn't obey the law, so we're going to pass these new laws. What would make me obey the new laws if that's who I am? Take away your money. Your law doesn't matter. <laughs> your law doesn't matter to me, right? So there's something even more dangerous, and that is you're wrong. I actually obey the law. I actually am ethical. And then you pass craziness that I know I can't effectively fight crime if I follow that law, but then I'm going to follow it anyway. Because guess what? You were wrong. I do follow the law, and my industry massively follows the law. You're going to get a few outliers that say, well, I don't care what the law says. I'm still going to kneel on this guy. You're going to get a few outliers like that. You are. But most of us are going to go, okay, we can't do that anymore. We won't do it. And guess what? We're going to let that guy go. That's the bigger problem. The bigger problem is that we're going to obey every stupid law you pass. And you know what's going to happen? And we're not going to do it in spite. We're going to do it because we do obey the law. So now here's the bigger problem. 
you pass a bunch of anti-law enforcement laws that, that basically tell the police, you can't do these stops, you can't do these stops, you can't do these stops, that's fine. We'll stop doing those stops. But the result of that, the consequence of that is those people don't get arrested. They're not going to magically turn themselves in. So those people stay in the community. And so your, your robbery rate goes up, your gang rates go up, your homicides go up. Guess what? That's happened in every one of those cities, every single one of them. And it'll continue to happen. And it's not the cops snubbing their nose. It's us saying, okay, what are the new laws? We're going to obey those laws. Don't pass silly laws because we will obey every one of them. Okay. And, and that's a bigger problem. Absolutely. Well, the other thing that I don't think is ever discussed is, you know, why are the streets of, let's say, Portland or, you know, Vegas so much more dangerous than the streets of Oslo or Reykjavik, you know? And then you look at the kind of culture of whether it's parenting and we start this conversation, whether it's some of the other, you know, rules or regs or, you know, influences that create either law-abiding citizens or criminals. And and one thing, and I'll preface this as, you know, this is my my view, my opinion, but um, a few years ago, my family moved to, or well, quite a long time ago, they moved to Portugal. And a few years ago after starting this, my mom said, hey, did you know that uh, they decriminalized addiction? Not smuggling, not selling, but just addicts. They took addicts instead of sending them through the court system, they sent them through mental health and addiction counseling. They have had a, a very good, you know, success with that and allowed them to really use their police resources for the murderers and pedophiles and all the other shitbags of the world. And then the, the, the court system was freed up as well. Um, when we're looking at the other side of the coin, the community, how giggling toddlers become gangbangers and murderers and, and drug dealers and everything else that are out there murdering law enforcement as well as civilians. What is your view on whether it's, you know, that particular thing I talked about, proactive measures that we can flip the mirror around the other way and stop creating such violence on the streets in the first place? So multifaceted problem and, and one beyond even my expertise. Um, I, I, I can speak as a I will speak strictly from my experience as a law enforcement officer and then as a, a husband and a father and a guy who's active in multiple communities. So I'll give that preface to, to my answer. And I will also say that I haven't studied this in depth and these will be my experiences and my, my perspective, but there are some commonalities. Um, um, there, there are some, some commonalities, um, with all the problems you mentioned, um, I believe one of the issues is the disintegration of of families. And I'm not speaking of of uh, just a man and a woman. I I know people who raise children in in various um, conditions and do it very very well. And by the way, there's a lot of single parents that do a phenomenal job, or parents who are now divorced that co-parent and do a phenomenal job. So I'm not speaking of just one version of the family, but there are also a lot of people who have very dysfunctional, uh, they're raised in dysfunctional environments on both the mother's side and the father's side, or they are distinctly lacking one or the other, either a mother or a father uh, figure and uh, or a partner or a secondary parent role. I know that for my kids, not all of my kids even, even, um, connect with me 
as opposed to their mom. And I have other members of my kids that I've raised my, in my own home that relate better to me than they do their mom. They love both of us. Uh, they receive love from both of us. Uh, but now let's, let's extrapolate that and let's say that they didn't receive love from both of us and, or from either one of us. Um, what problems might then come forward because storms come to everybody. Okay. The, the one thing that's going to be true in life is challenge and storms and hardship will come to everyone. One of the, one of the reasons that we have these, these other people take things in other areas, whether it be addictions, whether it be criminality, uh, some of the reasons they pursue those other outlets like addictions and criminality is because when those storms occur, all they're getting is a storm. They're not getting any other resource to deal with the storm. They're not learning how to manage storms in their lives. They're not being nurtured through storms in their lives. They're just getting storm after storm after storm as a metaphor, uh, challenge after challenge after challenge. And there isn't any answer for those challenges. And so then they find those answers in other, in other areas, whether that be narcotics, whether that be gangs, whether that be criminality, whether that be, uh, I'm just an angry, bitter person that hates everybody and wants to hurt other people. Cause I'm hurt all the time. There's, there's no, um, there's no, um, growth or, or good thing out of the storm. And so my kids have challenges and storms, just like every, every kid on the, in the world or in the universe. Uh, they just hopefully have been given, uh, many and not just my wife and I, but our extended family. And then, uh, you look at the different communities that are beneficial to myself and then to my family. Uh, I have a faith-based community that, that works well for us that we enjoy and that we take part in. Now there are members of my family that choose not to partake in that. And that is not, um, they don't find value in it and that's fine as well. But there, the majority of my family does find that. And, and I personally do. So, so I have that community that can help, uh, the jujitsu community and the MMA community. Uh, there are huge lessons to be learned, uh, not a religion, not a way of life, not a, uh, you know, I don't want to be cultish and think jujitsu and is the way, but at the same time, there is a ton that you can learn and that can be, uh, learn about yourself, learn about life, learn about dealing with challenges through going through the processes you're going to go through if you train on a regular basis. And then those things are going to manifest. And the way you uh, think and treat yourself and in the way you think and treat other people that you come in contact with. So there's that. And you could gain that from uh, regular physical workouts. You could gain that from um, another sporting event. You could gain that in a lot of different areas. But for me, the jiu-jitsu community and one of my sons in particular enjoys that community with me and attends regularly and, and enjoys that. I've got a son-in-law that enjoys that community. And spends time in it. So that's a positive place where we can gain value to learn how to deal when challenges pop up. Um, I've, I've got these other ways. I've been challenged before. I've overcome challenge before. I've had positive results from challenge before. Now I can extrapolate that and use that in my personal life. And then the final thing um, is that family dynamic. Um, 
you can look at the numbers in America and look at um, the numbers between having intact family units and then today what happens and just statistically and people who people who do study this and do write about it, uh, certainly there's not a consensus, but there is a broad acceptance among certainly a portion of the people who study these problems that says that these problems go right back into the home uh, here in America and the lack of stability and the lack of positive coping things being built in through the children from a young age on up for any number of reasons, uh, the lack of parenting and those things are contributing to these issues as well. Beautiful. Well, thank you for that perspective. I agree. And it's funny, it ties in perfectly with the beginning of the conversation too. Um, so you touched on jujitsu. I, I'm, uh, I've been a very, very, very part-time practitioner for several years, but it was very much two steps forward, three steps back, to be honest. And I found myself now really embedded in a, in a gym here, which I'm loving again. So tell me about, um, you don't have to give me the whole journey, but, but, um, what you're seeing when, jiu-jitsu or a similar sort of combative is embraced with law enforcement and also the the kind of split between sport jiu-jitsu and the kind of jiu-jitsu that law enforcement really needs to to seek out so so jiu-jitsu um jiu-jitsu grappling wrestling i do a ton of wrestling ton of jiu-jitsu it could be sambo it could be uh elements of judo um First off, the law enforcement, if you look at the law enforcement overall objective of using force or violence in the commission of my day-to-day duties in a reasonable, lawful manner, that's going to occur uh, for me to, A, be able to deal with a, a physical threat towards me or somebody else of harm and behavior that's manifesting an intent to do that harm, and then uh, that force or violence is going to be used ultimately to overcome that resistance and then and then basically gain custody or control of that subject so that even if the threat never goes away, at least it's controlled through handcuffs, through maybe hobbles, through a spit mask if they're spitting, and we've taken that person's ability. You could put all those things on a person and they could continue to try to hurt people. It just greatly reduces their ability to do so. So jujitsu doesn't really eliminate the threat. It, it helps control the threat and then lead to custody of the threat, which then can dissipate the effectiveness of the threat. We talk about a lack of effectiveness for police use of force. What I'm trying to do to the bad guy is make a lack of effectiveness in his physical resistance. And I do that through positions of control and then ultimately gaining custody through restraint devices. So that's the goal. That is the overarching goal of law enforcement. So if your law enforcement training does not embrace grappling or hands-on, you're missing, I don't understand how you're gonna achieve your primary goal of control, then custody. So you must do grappling. That started my jujitsu journey. I wasn't a martial artist. I didn't want to be a martial artist. I didn't grow up dreaming about being a martial artist. Uh, I tried karate. I didn't like it. Uh, I could physically beat up the kids in karate class with no training. I didn't find it valuable. Uh, uh, you know, I lifted weights and ran and played team sports. And, and 
that was it. Uh, once I became a police officer and I analyzed what's my goal, what's my outcome, I, I looked at it from an athletic perspective and said, if I wanted to be the perfect police officer, a professional police officer, a high-level police officer, I have to have grappling acumen. Uh, now, that grappling acumen must also include the ability to deal with strikes, uh, the ability to wrestle well because I don't want to be taken down and I want to take my opponent down, and the ability to deal with weapon systems, both mine and others. So I've got to build that into it as well. And so I, really the mixed martial arts approach with an emphasis on grappling, I feel like is by far, bar none, by far the most effective law enforcement training and should be taught in every police department nationwide. Hence, me not only beginning, I used to teach kind of the industry standard one-off class. I would do a class on ground control or a class on punch defense or a class on weapon defense or an instructor class on all of it, team tactics, communication, de-escalation, use of force, all that stuff, right? What I've evolved into, and once again, this goes back to why it's good. There's always good with resistance. This is the other thing guys don't realize with this time frame. A lot of guys are saying, oh, this is the worst time ever, and my career's over, law enforcement's over. This is making us get better. It's a storm. How do you deal with storms? Because there's a storm, you're going to quit? I, who was down? Who's the one putting up memes of, I am the storm and all that stuff? If you're that guy and you're quitting because a few politicians don't like you anymore, then you're weak. You need to reevaluate yourself. Because out of this storm will come growth. We'll get better. We'll get better. I'm convinced of it. Or you'll sit around and whine about it and decide life's over and you've been defeated. That's fine if that's your perspective. It's not mine. What we're going to do out of this is we're going to make training a premium. And we're going to tell police chiefs and politicians, hey, I don't mind if you put money over into this or this, but where you really need to put money is training. I have a class right now scheduled in September in Texas. There was a municipality offering that class. A day ago, now the class is in mid-September. A day ago, they emailed me and said, hey, our chain has said they're not going to fund this project. Now, realize this has been getting advertised. Guys are coming from other states, New Jersey, uh, New York. Uh, I think I got a guy from Arizona going out. I got a guy from Oregon. And now the host agency says, guess what? They pulled the plug on this. And it's they already said yes. We've been advertising it. Well, now I'm moving it. Now I'm going to move it. I'm going to, I'm going to, the class is being saved. I'm so not upset with the officers involved that I said, you can send a guy for free to the new location. I'll sponsor a dude from your agency. And I'm scrambling now to find a home for this class. I was doing that right up to the time we came on this call. You know, deal, thinking of different things. I'm also dealing with my work, my normal day-to-day -day work, you know. Um, all, all this, this evening, I'll cement those plans and move that class. If I got paid by the amount of cops who said I can't come because they won't fund me or they won't give me time off, I would be wealthy beyond imagination. So I believe one of the good things that can come out of this is we say enough. You have to train. You have to train in these disciplines. And hence, police jujitsu, which is uh, code four concepts, C4C, police jujitsu, PJJ, 
is actually a five-level system of foundations block and then five levels that an officer could train their entire career, similar to a belt system in jiu-jitsu, but not the same. You could be a brown belt in jiu-jitsu and be a blue, a level two blue pin in PJJ. I don't get belts. I get pins and levels because – if you're a brown belt in jiu-jitsu and you don't do live takedowns and you don't punch each other and you don't know how to defend against knives and you can't retain a handgun, you're a brown belt in sport jiu-jitsu. And that's not bad. You have a certain skill set, but you're lacking. Hence, police jiu-jitsu, which is police jiu-jitsu is designed around the idea of the whole fight. Stand up, ground, striking, team tactics, de-escalation, handcuffing, using walls or objects, um, fighting from bottom, fighting from top, um, all those things are incorporated in. Yeah, well, I, I got a glimpse as a civilian. Tim Kennedy and some of his guys came and did the sheepdog response here in Ocala uh, about oh God, two years ago now, I think it was. Um, and there was a couple of interesting perspectives. Firstly, all of us that were fire and or um, I think there was one law enforcement officer in the civilian side because he probably couldn't make it to the law enforcement side. Um, but, uh, you know, when you introduce weapons, you know, the, it was a game changer. You know, you, some of these guys were sport jiu-jitsu guys and they were pulling guard and then they were getting a knife stuck in them or, you know, a, a, a thumb to the eye socket or, you know, fish hook or all these things. Tim was Cover. I, I received this myself. Covering the mouth and nose with a hand. You're like, wait a second. <laughs> you can't do that. Oh yes, you can. But then the other thing is that that class actually was was capacity both days. This was right after the Parkland shooting, and so some sponsor had sent a huge amount of money and basically provided free spots for a host of responders. On the law enforcement side, locally here, they weren't full the first day, and these are free spots, sponsored spots. And then the second day, they had a bunch of no-shows as well. So what I have, have witnessed in my profession is that a lot of people, when they, especially when they become deconditioned, there's a fear of looking bad. There's a fear of going through that crucible, which when you look at it is the worst quality you can have as a firefighter or a, first or a police officer because we're dealing with life and death. So you talked about, you know, the... The people not be able to go because of funding or days off. What about the mindset of the officers? How do we get these men and women on the ground level to to have the courage to go realize where they suck the same way as I did when, when I went through the civilian side? Because I think it scares a lot of people, which people thinking of firefighters or police officers being scared would kind of, you know, be surprised. But I find that the a lot of people are intimidated by training, but that Overcoming that intimidation is the only way that we do grow. Well, and I think that that happens a couple different ways. Um, um, we don't. One of the things that C that C four C does is we don't lie to our students. There's not a weekend class I can give you that'll make you proficient. You're going to need to continue to train, and we have whole blocks on this on on the importance of training a little a lot. Consistency over time gives you results. Those kind of uh, formulas and methodologies and then implementing them into your life. And so we don't even worry about going. Um, um, I've taken Tim's sheepdog stuff, by the way, excellent training, really good stuff. And Tim Tim's approach is very, very solid. 
there are some groups and even in CQB you'll see you'll see this where guys are doing what we call force on force on day one right away and they're getting shot in the sim house and 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 that's the way they're quote unquote learning and I would argue you're not learning I would argue uh, there's some learning that that there can be some pain response learning I don't mind that but but there needs to be a principle-based, systematic, fundamental approach. And installing that in a training environment is more important than crazy hard reps where you expose all the weakness and all that stuff. People already know they can't fight. That's why they're afraid to go to really hard fight classes. What they hold on to is that I'll mentally be tough enough in the fight that I'll just get through it. So if your training is just get through it training every session, it's pretty much useless. There's not an NFL team. There's not a pro fight team that's competent, that's high level in the nation, that's having super hard sparring every day. Every single day. We're going to just like I'm – so I'll speak to that because I know definitely on this. The gym I coach jiu-jitsu at has an active pro fight team where those guys are fighting in Bellator and the UFC and the PFL, they're fighting at the highest levels. They have people that all they do is fight for a living. They are professional athletes. If you went and watched class, uh, they're exercising what I call mechanics, consistency, and tempo, MCT. The athletes are doing the correct mechanics consistently on time, but they're controlling tempo. Why do we control tempo? Because A, you can't learn at 1,000 miles an hour full speed and b you can't manage injury or or to both parties at full speed can't do it your injury rate's going to go through the roof and your lack of retention or learning is going to happen what you can do with hard full speed training is prove you're tough and you need some of that there's no reason to not do some of that when you've built a foundation and you're not going to automatically get hurt we don't want to have compiling injury so let's go back to your, your first question. How do we affect mindset? What we do is we tell them, hey, you're not good at this. You're a little bit afraid. Uh, and that's okay. That's normal. There's no issue with that. And we're not going to attack you and rip your face off in training tomorrow. Now, we're going to work up to the pace where you can defend yourself if I come after you. And we're not going to come after you in a moon suit or some weird suit. I'm going to have a mouthpiece, maybe some headgear some gloves and we're going to fight because I'm going to be able to control myself and you're going to be able to control yourself. Uh, you know, that that's what we're working towards. So what I want to impart with my training is a systematic fundamental principle-based approach where I'm building skill sets in my officers or athletes that then those skill sets can be applied to very specific training, sparring scenarios and then we slowly can turn up tempo on those as you show proficiency until we can go, we can pretty much get after each other and we're, we're not going to probably have a significant injury. And that's the goal. And you don't do that in a single weekend training session. You do that over time with repeated training. So the, one of the goals to change that mindset, industry-wide, we are broken training-wise. And what I mean by that is we train annually uh, at most departments. Some, the worst departments don't train annually. The best department or 
a good majority of departments have an annual or biannual training, which means one or two training sessions a year. And then your higher level LEO departments train quarterly, anywhere from four to eight hours a quarter. That would be a high level department. All of those are woefully inadequate. What we need to switch to is a little, a lot. I'm training a week, an hour to four hours a week, every week. That's what should be happening. And that training should be hands-on, physical training, but we can, we can control tempo or pace. PJJ is one program where you could do that, but departments could make their own programs. They don't have to do mine. Mine's competent, it works well. And, and officers need to be training every single week, much like the fire service. You guys get this right. You guys have repeated ongoing training at work, on company time, and we need to do the exact same thing. And our chiefs need to get behind it, and our politicians need to get behind it. It doesn't need to be a class led by me. It can be an internal class. Here's the other pushback within my industry we get. We're so broken in the way we train that we say to run a class, you've got to have a DTI, you got to have this lesson plan, you got to have these strict objectives. It's so dangerous that you can't let two cops go back to the station. Like you could take a squad of cops and say, hey, you've got a lunchtime and you may or may not make it. If we get crazy busy, you might not, you might have to eat in your car and you have a training time as partners. And you may or may not make that, but we want to make it a priority. Unless there's like an active shooter or a foot pursuit or a vehicle pursuit, if there's a stolen car holding, you'll go do your training and then go do your stolen car and schedule everybody throughout the evening. That's a way to do it, for example. And they're going back to the station and they're doing mechanics consistency out of the department's DT curriculum or like a PJJ curriculum, for example. And those officers are driving back to the station and what they're controlling is tempo. Because we're at work. We're literally putting our radio off on the side, taking our stuff off, our live gear, and we could be in an undershirt and our pants training. We could be lightly striking. We could be grappling. We could be hand fighting. We could be doing department takedowns back and forth. We're getting about 40 minutes in to 50 minutes, light warm-up technique, a little bit of drilling, a little bit of free sparring at a controlled pace, never above half speed. Then we're putting all our crap back on and we're going back out. City of Mesa, for example, which is a suburb of Phoenix, is doing this program. And they have an hour every day for their cops. And the way they do it is if you have a swing shift of cops, half the shift can stay in for the first hour, the other, and they have overlying, over, overlapping shifts, so days, swings, graves all overlaps. So they have coverage. When days comes on, half the shift stays in for the first hour and can do combatives, physical training. They can do push-ups, body air squats. They can work weights in. They can work conditioning in. They have an hour every day. The other half comes in an hour early and does a workout. And they do this every single day. Now, it's not a full workout. It's not a kill-you workout because I can't do that to start my day. And then the radio goes off and we do have foot pursuit and I got to throw my crap on and go. And now I'm in a foot pursuit and I don't have anything left, but it's 
It's training. But it was interesting, even when City of Mesa implemented that, and by the way, they've done an incredible job, and it's change. And change is hard. At first, there was this idea, and I get it. Hey, there's got to be a DTI. There's, And I proposed, I said, if our DTs are so dangerous that two guys can't drill them alone, how can we use them on calls with civilians? And the answer then is, and also if a DTI has got to be present every time I train, there should be a DTI on every single call I go on. Because holy crap, I got to have a DTI oversee it if I do any kind of physical hands-on to a civilian. How can you justify me going in the field and putting hands on people who aren't police officers if I can't do it back at the station with my buddy safely? If all, everything we're teaching is so deadly, then we're probably teaching the wrong stuff. I got a bunch of stuff that's not that deadly that children do, that housewives do, pro fighters do. So that's been the impetus. And that is a change I, I see. I have departments who want to do this program. They don't want one-time training. They want a program, a curriculum. And that is a positive that's coming out of this storm. And, and we have the ability to deliver that. Beautiful. Well, speaking of that, and I'm sure people listening are, you know, intrigued, interested. So tell me about the programs that you offer for law enforcement and or civilians. Um, and then where can people find those online? So online, we're several places. It's uh, progressive training, progressive concepts training, pfctraining.com. Uh, if you look up PFC training, we offer firearms, all kinds of training, tactical training, military training, law enforcement, civilian classes. So pfctraining.com. On Instagram, PFC training has a page. PFC training also has a YouTube account. For myself, Chad Lyman, C4C operator on Instagram, C4C operator, or C4C PJJ for more specific LEO applications. Both of those I, I post at all the time. I have over 7,000 posts on my primary Instagram, and then the secondary Instagram doesn't have that many, but that's because it hasn't been a around as long. I post every week, and I post regularly. I post free content, not an infomercial. A lot of these other guys post the same post all, every time. I'm posting actual drills, content, coaching, and, and I'm committed to continuing to offer some of those free uh, opportunities and will continue to do so. Um, in addition to that, um, you can find me on Facebook at Chad Lyman. You can find me on YouTube at Chad Lyman or C4CPJJ, um, both those places. So those are all places that people might be able to find me. For training, we offer everything from individual custom classes on a specific topic to a whole system, like I've mentioned in PJJ. We teach instructor development. We teach use of force. We teach um, just ground. We teach um, stand-up, all of it, or compartmentalize it either way and uh, teach that consistently uh, to military law enforcement and also to civilians. PJJ will have its own website within the year, and PJJ also will have a, a subscription um, video platform coming by the end of the year where people who want to learn can learn via online status, and that is coming. 
Beautiful. Well, if you've got time for a couple of closing questions, I'd just love to get your, your feedback on those. So first question, is there a book that you love to recommend that can be related to what we've discussed today or completely unrelated? Oh, wow. Hold on. I'm going I'm to look. Hold on. Take your time. Because I, I do have. So I like the, the Bounce book, which talks about how we learn. And it's by Matthew Saeed. Uh, I like his work, Matthew Saeed. And then I also like, um, oh, I'm trying to remember his books. There's another guy who wrote multiple books on learning um, and how we learn. He's, oh, Matthew Saeed, though, Balance is a great book. It just talks about how folks learn. I really enjoy that. Beautiful. All right. It wasn't Josh Waitskin, was it? The the learning guy? No, it's um Yeah, I'll think of it as soon as we hang up. He's written multiple books, several books. No worries. David and Goliath was one. Um it's about mindset and thinking. Okay. Well I'll look it up from the title and I'll put it on the webpage. So thank you. What about um a movie and or documentary that you love? Uh documentaries I, I, I really enjoy um i thought one of the interesting ones was uh the one on the bomber in salt lake city uh that that was uh blowing up lds targets i thought that was a very well done documentary i like documentaries that are either nature-based or on the earth or on uh uh people and criminality those are the ones that interest me and then uh Movies, um, I, I enjoy uh, Mission Impossible. Some of those movies are, are fun to watch. Um, Night and Day uh, was another good good movie. I enjoyed that one. Those happen to be Tom Cruise movies. He's, he's good. I, um, I just happen to enjoy those movies, though not necessarily him per se. Brilliant. All right. Next question. Is there a person you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Yeah, Jay Wadsworth and uh, and uh, Ari from uh, Invictus are both good dudes. All right. And then do you still work with um, Randy Couture? I thought that would be another person I think would be a fascinating guest as far as his background in the military. Rand- Randy would be great. Yeah, I do. Yeah, Randy would be a good guy. Beautiful. Is that someone you'd be able to connect me with as well? Yep, I could talk to him. Brilliant. All right, thank you. All right, well, then the last question um, before I make sure, well, we, never mind, we, we already went over where to find you. Last question, what do you do to decompress? Uh, several things. Spend time with my family. Uh, uh, I like to read scriptures and... Uh, and kind of meditate or think of that and then and then work out brilliant well chad i want to say thank you so much i know you've got to run now but i truly appreciate you taking the time um i had in my mind you know a much more in-depth conversation on combatives but it ended up going some fascinating places and I'm, i'm so glad that we went there so thank you so much for being so generous with your time today no problem if you want to do a combative thing later we can circle back and do that as well 